put this up last week, very briefly, a Dilbert cartoon. And I decided, no, we won't go to it because we'll just start on it this week. Because the topic we're covering sounds very much like the corporate world. We're going to get into this idea of envy and jealousy uh, and workaholicalism that are involved. And if you think this is a repeated theme in Ecclesiastes, yes, it is. It's one of those repeated themes that keeps coming up again and again and again. And why not? It's a very real aspect of our lives. And as you see it up here, you know, you have the boss there. Our new slogan is pressure makes diamonds. And, you know, that sounds great, doesn't it? But uh, then you start asking, well, what about that pressure? Well, how about pressure makes garbage more compact? I wonder if that one is taken. And, of course, here the boss is saying, I, I hate this strong job market for engineers. How many of you are engineers? And how many of you read Dilbert just because you're engineers? <laughs> Irritation makes pearls. Or maybe pressure makes wine. <laughs> you know, the, the corporate life, the life at work in the labor market and in, in the employment market for man and woman alike in our day has a lot of pressure. And there's a lot that comes to bear on individuals. And every one of us in our families have had to deal with that from time to time and how that affects our overall way of living. And when we look at this in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, it is a reality that Solomon deals with. And he's going here in verses 4 through 6, where if you're looking at the notes, it's on page 27 of the notes there. And as we look at this observance of jealousy, keeping in mind that he's also going to observe loneliness and also observe politics, three things here that we're going to be looking at. When he looks at jealousy, we're talking here about things like envy, covetousness. We're talking about greed. And all of these work as motivation in one way or another to many people with regard to the fervor with which they approach their work, with the amount of time they spend working and laboring. Uh, when we just ask ourselves, why did I spend this many hours this week above and beyond my normal work schedule, doing what I was doing, why? And we sometimes will say, well, because uh, it needed done. Or we'll say, it's in order that uh, it's, we get things accomplished that need to be accomplished to keep moving ahead. Why do we keep focusing on moving ahead? And sometimes it boils down to the fact that we do it just because of personal pride. Or we're doing it because of personal greed. We want to make a name for ourselves, or we want to make more money, uh, sometimes even money we might not need immediately. And so we have to examine ourselves constantly. What is our motivation when we go to work? What's our motivation in the things we do? And it's no wonder then when we look at this, and, and it's talking about almost a dog-eat-dog -dog kind of environment where you're willing to step on others as you climb the ladder of success in order to get to the top before someone else. You're willing to sacrifice relationships, willing to sacrifice even ethics in order to get it done. And this is part of the corporate world, and it breeds, breeds a 
greed and an envy and a jealousy into the working environment all too often. And it's no wonder then that the scripture, when it talks about this kind of work, refers to it as an evil work. That's the fascinating thing about it as you look at verse 3. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity. That evil activity or evil labor or evil process of uh, working for something. It's viewed as evil. It's viewed as wicked because it does not honor the values that God wants us to value. That's the point of it. God wants us to value humility, self-sacrifice, compassion, concern for others, love for others, not a love of wealth or money, not a love of personal honor and advancement, but a love that has, takes into uh, regard the needs of others. And also for those of us who are married, that means taking into account our families as well. What is best for our families in our relationships? Notice the contrast that Solomon gives us between verses four and five. He says here, I've seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. So here we have two different viewpoints. In that contrast, we have the person in verse four who is greedy and envious and he displays too much ambition and too little contentment. But the fool, on the other hand, is the exact opposite to the opposite extreme. Too much contentment and too little drive, too little ambition. There is a happy medium between the two. That's the point that is being brought out. And later in the book, in chapter 7, Solomon is actually going to address that. That many of the issues in life, when we see the two opposite contrasts, and both of the contrasts are not what is best, it's the middle that we're to be at. There's to be a balance. There's to be a, a weighing out of all of these things. You see, one of the issues here, uh, when we look at the person who is overambitious and look at their greed and their covetousness and their envy that drives them, is that the scripture explains that jealousy and envy divides families. We see that in Genesis 30 in the family of Jacob. It kills, according to Job. It harasses, according to Isaiah. It produces anger, according to Solomon, Proverbs chapter 6. And it produces rottenness in the bones, which might be a way of describing illness or it might be a way of describing the idea of a bad attitude. And we're not to envy violent people or sinners. So the scripture is very plain on what we are to do here. Now, another picture that is used here with regard to the fool is his folding of his hands. Now, I don't know about you, I, I like Sunday afternoon naps, yeah. right? How many of you are gonna take a nap this afternoon? Or try, yes, see? And what do we do? Lay there with my hands folded and uh, go to sleep on the couch or wherever. You know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing, folding the hands that way. Folding the hands is mentioned 13 times in the book of Proverbs, always in a context of the lazy, good-for-nothing, foolish person. Now, taking a Sunday afternoon nap isn't necessarily lazy, good-for-nothing, and foolish, all right? We're not talking about that. 
But if we have work that needs done, that we should be doing, and in the context of Proverbs, not in order for personal gain or advancement, or for adding more wealth, but rather work that we have an accountability responsibility for, then to shirk that and to put it off and to postpone and procrastinate is a fool's approach. Because with all that work to do, we just lay down and say, I'm gonna take a nap and I'm gonna avoid it. And that's part of what Solomon is addressing here as well. And he says that if, if you get involved in that type of behavior of laziness, which is the opposite extreme of the man of envy and greed and drive, uh, this foolishness says ends up in a person consuming their own flesh. So what does it mean by consuming their own flesh? Well, there are three different views. One says that it's a figurative speech it's self-cannibalism that really is talking about a metaphor of self-destruction. The second is that it should be retranslated to say that he still has meat, <laughs> uh, which is a very different idea or concept here. Or it can be reducing oneself to poverty. The metaphor, the first one we talked about, is probably the best way to take the text here. So it is saying, in effect, then, that it will bring self-destruction. The person who is lazy on the extreme avoids the responsibility and accountability that he has or she has is going to end up in destroying themselves in one way or the other. It doesn't have to be physical destruction. It can be emotional destruction. It can be a destruction of your economic situation. It can be a loss of goods due to neglect and lack of care, any number of things. Uh, the picture that the, the book of Proverbs constantly presents is the person who has a field with crops or has a vineyard with vines in it, and when it's supposed to be pruned, pruned, he doesn't prune it, and when the grapes should be gathered, he doesn't gather them, and by the time he finally gets around to doing it, they're rotting on the vine, so the crop is a waste. And so then what does he do for the following year? He's lost his income, he's lost some of the crops that are be for food, and uh, all of a sudden, he's unable to take care of himself or his family. And it started with laziness and a lack of attention to the things at hand. Now, what about contentment? What is true contentment? What's involved here? We talked about the person who's not contented enough. We talked about the person who's overly content. Now, contentment can exist where the individual actually possesses fewer material goods but finds satisfying rest, according to verse 6. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. That word for fist in the language there is, is utilized over and over again to express the concept of holding as much as possible. Uh, if you have grandchildren like I do, or if you have young children and you hold out a candy dish to them, what do they do? Grab all they can, right? They just try to see how much they can get in one handful. That's the picture here. That's the picture here. It says that rest, one hand of rest is better than two hands full of labor and striving after wind. In other words, all that labor that is driven by envy, jealousy, greed, all of that labor 
is just grabbing on for everything we can possibly get. Grab it, take it, bring it to ourselves, hold it, save it, hoard it. We're holding it with both hands and we don't have a hand left to grab rest. We need that rest, we need that recreation, we need that time, downtime. We need time to recharge the batteries. We need time to take care of things with our family and ourselves. We need time for prayer, for devotions, for reading the scriptures. We need time for taking a break from work. Uh, last night in talking to the Bible Science Association mentioned this concept of Sabbath is really no work. That's what Sabbath means. God didn't need rest in the sense of resting from labor because he's tired, because God never tires. So what did he do on the seventh day after creation? He stopped work. No work. The Sabbath rule for the Jewish Sabbath is no work. And that's what Sabbath means. Sabbath really means stop. It means work stoppage. It doesn't mean exhaustion and needing rest. It's to stop work. Sometimes you need to stop work in order to give attention to spiritual matters. Tom? Do they take that to the limits? Stop working. Oh, yes. Extreme limits. Don't walk over a mile on the Sabbath day. Right. Yeah, but it's, it's built upon a right concept of the fact that God stopped work. He did no creation on day seven. Stopped work. All his work was done in six days. And uh, it's a totally different word for rest. The word for rest is the name of Noah. And just compare Noah and Sabbath. What similarity is there between those two words? There's no similarity at all. Noah means rest. Sabbath means stop work. Two totally different words, two totally different concepts. So we need to realize that rest, and the word for rest here is the one that's related to Noah. That's the concept here is not just stop work. It's the idea of rest. Why? Because we do get exhausted and tired out. We're not God. We need that rest. You need that nap this afternoon. Thank you, <laughs> Okay. The preoccupation with the pursuit of wealth is just as evil as laziness. Remember, the love of money is the root of all evil, Paul wrote to Timothy. And sometimes our pursuit is because of the love of money. And that is the root of all evil. And we sometimes don't put those together in the same frame and think about them. Solomon wrote about this elsewhere. Psalm 127. That's a ways back when we covered Psalm 127. I think it was a year and a half ago. But it is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late. My wife's going to preach this to me when I get home tonight. <laughs> To eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. See, this is another proof of Solomonic authorship of the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon, just like any other writer, dwells on the same concepts that have really been rooted in his soul and his being. And he repeats them in book after book, place after place. And here we see that repetition of what we see here in Ecclesiastes. Now let's move to the second point in verses 7 through 12. We're moving now from the problem of jealousy and envy to the problem of loneliness. And as we think of the problem of loneliness, we say, well, wait a minute. This is a huge jump or leap. But let's talk about that a minute. Let's answer this question. 
In what ways does envy lead to a loss of companionship? Anyone? Well, like the single life, when you're single, you want to be married. Okay. All right. Okay, so that envy can produce, if you're overdriven that way, it drives people away, right? You lose friendships. Becky? Okay. All right, if we invest our time and our efforts, our energies, into making money, we end up not investing time in building relationships. And if we don't build relationships, we end up alone in the end. We might have a lot of wealth, might have a lot of success, might have made a big name for ourselves, but we do not have friends anymore. Kind of like a breadwinner that works so much that the family can have everything. All right. ignoring the family. Okay. Ignoring the family. You've lost that relationship even. Butch? Okay. All right. It, it's, it's the competitive aspect, and competition is always trying to put ourselves forward, leaving others behind. An interesting story, and I'll come over here. I'll pick you up, Ed. Don't forget it. Uh, one of the uh, missionaries in Samoa described watching a race one day. And as, as this race was going along, he said this one fellow was way out ahead on the race. And it was guaranteed he was going to win. But before he got to the finish line, he turned and looked and saw that he was way ahead of everyone. So he slowed down and waited until they caught up with him. And then he went on ahead. So they asked him, why did you do that? And they said, it would embarrass them if I won by that much. I want them to be there and I want them to feel like they're part of the race. That's totally opposite of our approach in the West, isn't it? It's a drive, beat them as far as you can, you know? Ed? Kind of what Butch was saying, an envious person is not a pleasant person to be around. And so they're, you know, you're gonna distance yourself from that type of person. Okay, good. And I'd like to come back to the thing that Gina mentioned again too. In this context, uh, when we're talking about workaholicalism, it's really the family those who are closest to you that you really need that become alienated. And it, it's a huge issue. We talked, the pastor recommended the, the marriage class again today. And that's one of the issues, is that where has our family come in our drive and ambition in relationship to what we do in the corporate world? And what we do can lose families. Why is it that politicians seem to ha have so, so high of a divorce rate? Why is it that company CEOs and CFOs and, and why those who are on the rise in a big corporation, whether it's uh, Microsoft or IBM or 3M or anything, why is it that their families seem to suffer the most and that, that they're, they get all these divorces and children with problems and everything else? It's because of this. It's because of this. Envy, jealousy, greed, selfish ambition, alienates those closest around us. And we forget what is important, exactly. Now, notice here that the summary that we have for this section in 7 through 12 uh, brings 
forward the concept of vanity, brings forward the concept of vanity. Uh, if you look at verse 7, it says, Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. The summaries in these sections come basically at the beginning of each one. And notice that if you go back and you look at verse 1, it says, Then I looked again, all the acts of oppression, etc., 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 no one to comfort, no one to comfort. And you look at verse 4, I've seen that every labor and every skill which is done to the result of rivalry, this too is vanity. Notice that those are always at the end after a long introduction. But here on 7, the briefest verse in this chapter, it's the summary of what follows having to do with loneliness. And vanity is brought up immediately. Then I looked again at vanity, at emptiness, at the enigma under the sun. That tells us this is very important because this comes to the front immediately. If Solomon has one truth he's trying to emphasize here is this. Relationships are, are important. Relationships are important. Very important. We had no comfort in verses 1 through 3. We have no contentment in verses 4 through 6. And in 7 through 12, no companion. Look at the development there. No comforter. And remember, the no comforter there back in uh, verses 1 to 3 has to do with the observing of oppression. The observing of oppression. No comforter to relieve the oppression. Verses 6 through 8, envy and jealousy, no contentment. And now with loneliness... It's due to no companion. And as we get further into this in verses 13 to 16 and have the observance of politics, there's no consistency. There's no consistency. These are the areas of vanity. These are the areas of emptiness. Life without comfort, life without contentment, life without a companion, life without consistency. These are the emptinesses that this chapter deals with and talks about. All the way through this section in verses 7 through 12, you have this reference to 1 and 2. Remember the title of this entire chapter I gave was 2 by 2? Because the emphasis on 2, it really comes to light here. Because notice in verse uh, 7, or verse 8, excuse me, there was a certain man, that's the word one in actuality, without a dependent, the New American, that, that is actually the word second. In other words, there was one without a second. And it defines that second as neither a son nor a brother. It's not here talking primarily about marriage. It's talking about loneliness that goes beyond that. Neither a son nor a brother. And we talk about that all the time. Even the Lone Ranger needs a tonto, right? There we go, right there. And, you know, we sometimes think you can really go it alone. One of the concepts, be praying for the elders. Your elders are going on an elder retreat this coming Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And as we go on that retreat, one of the things we're going to be talking about is building a buddy system between elders. So that as elders, we have another elder that we can count on in a buddy system to help us make certain that we keep accountable in taking care of the flock. 
and in making the ministry of PBC continue on. And this is part of it. We all need to be united with someone else to drive us forward and to hold us accountable and help us in that which we do. Two are better than one, right? I mean, that's the way my wife and I look every day, you know? <laughs> You see, sometimes that picture is like two big horn sheep rams butting heads, right? Now, no, that's not Barbanon. <laughs> Although that may be why I lost all the hair. <laughs> Notice who got the worst end of it. <laughs> but uh, two are better than one. And we need to make certain we keep that going and, and realize that not only within our families, but also even outside our families. Uh, Mike Augusta is a guy that helps keep me accountable in here. Uh, I get probably what, Mike, five, six, seven emails from you every week? And back and forth. Uh, he's not a pest, he's a blessing. And uh, you know, we get involved in finding out what's going on. He's the one that helps this class keep moving. I mean, if he's not gonna be in here, if he's on worship team, he makes certain there's someone to cover in here. He's constantly working. He's one of these guys in here that I look forward to working with because we have that type of accountability. We have that type of relationship there. And that is what makes things go. And we need to build relationships like that. Are you a member of Placerita Baptist Church? And have you paired up with another individual to disciple, to pray for, to encourage, to edify, to be there for, have you done that? If you have not, please do. That's what the church needs. We have to build those relationships. And let me challenge you this way. We talked about it on Saturday morning when a group of the elders and pastors met and we were discussing where we're going in leadership training and discipleship at Placerita. And our bottom line decision was that every one of us needs to start with one person. One, just one. Be involved in their lives. That one person. And if you do that and get involved in the life of one other person and build that friendship, that relationship, that companionship in Christ to encourage one another spiritually and in every other way, what's going to happen to Placerita Baptist Church? It's going to blossom. It's going to grow. And people are going to be concerned about one another and care for one another, and it's going to catch. And after a while, you've got that one that you had that great relationship for. You say, okay, go over here and pick this individual. They don't have a companion like that. Get in their lives. I'll go over here and get another person and get in their lives. We'll continue to keep in touch. Mike does that too. Mike gets involved in other lives. We can keep in touch now going onward because... We have that built-in relationship that's been going on now. And he can go on and he can put his efforts into another life and that multiplies the effort. That's what we need at Placerita. That's what we need right here in this class. Find someone to be involved in their lives. God declared that it is not good for man to be alone. And that was when man was perfect, 
created perfect by God and unfallen without sin, God said it was not good for him to be alone. How much more do we need someone in our fallen condition? God advocates companionship over a solo life. That's one of the things. Now, it doesn't have to be necessarily marriage, but there has to be a relationship. There has to be a companion. There has to be someone that we are accountable to and that we build a relationship with. Why is it that people end up alone? What are the reasons people end up alone? We already talked about them briefly at the beginning, but let's summarize some of the reasons, and maybe you've thought of a few more now. Diane? All right, jealousy and envy. What else? EJ? Freedom to go and do as you please. All right. When we value our freedom more than we value relationships. Carol? Pardon? Having been hurt. Okay, having been hurt. Sometimes being hurt causes us to hold people out away from us because we don't want to be hurt again. Okay, Coral? Okay, bitterness, holding in a lack of forgiveness, holding in resentment, holding in all those negative feelings will eventually drive a person, even in the end of their lives, no one wants to be around them. Even their own families are driven away. So we've got to get those type of things out of our lives. Bitterness, resentment, hatred, uh, all of those things. Do I have to another hand over here? Yes. Pride. Pride. Pride causes that, causes us to end up lonely, to be alone. Pardon? A lack of love, a lack of love for others, a lack of love for the Lord. Notice what verse 8 says. It says, uh, there was a certain man, there was one without a second, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked. Now, the never asked is put in italics because it's added to the text, but it is the meaning because notice there is a question that comes. The question is, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? For whom? All right, let's really get into the issue here. <clears throat> what is the normal response of the workaholic? I'm doing it for my family, right? I'm doing it for my family. But wait a minute. If the family's suffering because of what you're doing, how is that really for your family? They don't understand me. Okay, they don't understand me. Barbara? I think that happens in ministry work, too. Yes. You're doing it for God, but you're not doing it for your family. Okay. You're doing it for God. All right, good. Sometimes even spiritual service, good service, turns out to be a poor choice instead of taking care of family. The family is what we have. We lose our family. Uh, you know, all of you have been married for any period of time, you know, and especially if you've been involved in any form of ministry or active in the church, there's been those periods of time when you've had to stop and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
if I don't take care of my family and I lose my family, where's my service? I can't serve anymore. So, you know, we, we sometimes put those out there as very spiritually sounded, uh, they, they sound real spiritual excuses. I do it for my family, I'm doing it for God, but in reality, deep down, we're doing it because of ourselves. We want to appear as a certain kind of person to everyone else. And because of that, we use the good excuses for a bad reason, and it has terrible results. Joe? Um, Romans 19 talks about the poorness of friends. Um, and I think it's almost like it's in the context of uh, you want to be rich, and by becoming rich, you're thinking you're going to have more friends, but in essence, you're fully the opposite Right. Very good. Very good point. The complete opposite effect when we do that. All right? Now, let's look at the absences in this loneliness. Verses 7 through 8 are talking about an absence of an heir. No son, no brother. Verses 9 through 12 are the absence of a companion. No one to help. No one to keep warm in the cold night. No one to provide... A, coverage for your back, all right? The absence of a successor. At the end, on politics, this carries on the same thing. <clears throat> that the politician, the one who pours everything into becoming a leader in a nation, really ends up with no successor to follow because all the work he does is turned over to another who undoes everything. Money is their only kin, is what Dwayne Garrett summarizes this section with. Does it sound like someone you know? I hope there are very few people you know. The three examples of solitary existence are interesting. They all involve travel in the ancient Near East. First of all, the idea is you don't have anyone to help you out of a pit or out of a ravine that you've fallen into during your travels. The second is, you have no one to keep you warm. This is not talking about marriage here. It's talking about on a cold, ancient, Near Eastern, Palestinian night when you're traveling on the road and you and your companions reach a point where it's getting dark and you have to stay the night and it turns very cold at night. You lay down on the ground there and to stay warm, you're back to back with another person just to keep warm in the night. Whereas if you're out there all by yourself, how are you going to stay warm? The shepherds took care of that. They would lay down with the sheep. <laughs> and uh, sometimes they'd tie the legs of the sheep just to make the sheep make certain they stayed down. <laughs> and with camels, the same way. The idea here is of keeping warm during a cold night. Uh, encountering robbers on the road, you have no one to catch your back, no one to protect you in verse 12. And the application is we all need a helper, we need a comforter, we need a defender. That's the point. If we're lonely, we do not have those three. If we're alone. A three-strand or three-ply rope or cord is the final illustration. And the reason for that illustration is, if one other person is good, what about two other people? It makes you stronger. And isn't it interesting? Where two or three are gathered together in my name, Jesus said, there I am in their midst adding to it further. It's a pattern here. You can read about it in the notes of the X plus X plus one. 
And there's our reference in Matthew 18, 20. And try to carry that through, all the way through. Two or three is a theme in Scripture. Who are the believer's companions? Who are companions? Spouse, God, church, the fellow believers are companions. And we talk about God, we have a threefold God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, let's move to that last point quickly here and get into it so we can go on to chapter 5 next week. Observing politics. The, chapter be- the, the section begins with a contrast between a wise young person and a foolish old person. Yes, that does happen. It's kind of the opposite of what we normally expect, but it does happen. It does happen. There's generation gap and differences. And the contrast here is uh, focuses on relative age, not necessarily absolute age. Doesn't mean it's an eight-year-old compared to a 98-year-old. It could be a 40-year-old compared to a 50-year-old. The idea is that age doesn't necessarily bring wisdom. And when we try to identify the kings in this context that are being talked about, well, we have all kinds of uh, solutions. We have Joseph being talked about and Pharaoh perhaps, or we have Solomon and we have Rehoboam, his son, and then after him, Jeroboam, which might very well be the case, and I would advise that that's probably the best, because of 1 Kings chapter 11, in the Revelation has been there, Solomon had become foolish, and one of his servants, Jeroboam, he exiled to Egypt, and Jeroboam would return and would supplant Solomon's son, Rehoboam. So what's happened to Solomon's kingdom? It's gone to a foolish son who's turned it over to a rebellious servant, a rebellious servant of his father's. It could be what is being talked about here, and it is that which Solomon knew about. You might say, oh, wait a minute. That proves Solomon didn't write Ecclesiastes because he didn't know all these things. Oh, yes. God, through a prophet, told Solomon exactly what was going to happen. He told him exactly. He said, your son is going to lose the kingdom. He's going to retain only one tribe, and the other 11 tribes are going to go to one of your former servants. By divine revelation, by a prophet of God, Solomon was told this very clearly before his death. So that's why he could write about it here. He already knows, even though it hasn't happened yet, because God told him. Ahijah... The prophet confirmed that revelation as a second prophet to pass that on to uh, Jeroboam. And when we think about today, we have Iran, Nicaragua, South Africa, and South Korea all involved in that type of changeovers of governments where prisoners have come out of prison to take up residency in the president's palace. And remember, uh, prisons in ancient times were filled with more than criminals. They were filled with the poor. They were the poorhouse of the day. And the king is foolish because he didn't accept advice. I've given you a section on that uh, in detail in your notes. You can read it for yourself. A number of passages you can go to. The best counsel comes from God. The implication is this king failed to receive counsel even from God. And this is part of Solomon's confession. Wisdom, age, power, youth, political astuteness, and popularity all fail to guarantee political success or longevity. 
Why do political uh, solutions to society's problems fail? Look at your notes there, and I'll read it to you as we close here. Derek Kidner said this very clearly. Uh, and it's this idea that every great society eventually collapses, and the advances of decades disappear in the dust of political change. Derek Kidner says this, the paradox that a transfer of power to promote change actually limits the possibility of reform itself because the more control the reformer wields, the more it tends to tyranny. And that's why we don't get the change. But the real problem here is we ourselves, the individual, the citizens, we are part of the problem. We often blame the politicians and our government, but it all is built upon us because we are the ones who are the greedy, who want more and want our government to give us more. And every attempt meets with failure because of the fact that we're fallen. The fallen condition of mankind defies self-restoration. The only way we're going to see perfection is when we finally have the righteous one, Jesus Christ himself, reigning. And the reason that we resort to revolution oftentimes is because we fail to believe that the fault really lies with us. And that's where we begin. And that's what Solomon's getting after. He didn't realize that the fault was himself, and he's beginning to know it now. And we each one need to learn the same lesson. Well, that's where we conclude today. I trust you'll take that and think about it over this coming week and realize that this is why we pray, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, right? Amen? Amen. All right, let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for your wonderful gift to us in your word. Thank you for this time we spent together in it this morning. Pray that you'll help us to realize these truths and think about them throughout this coming week. Bring us back next week, ready to study the fifth chapter, to see some of the solutions to these problems that our writer will present us, and especially to direct us to you, to that one who is above and beyond the sun that shines on our planet, looking to eternity itself and knowing who you are. And Lord, help us to focus on you this coming week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.